Good morning. <clears throat> um, before we get started here this morning, I feel like I've had a dozen people ask me, what am I doing sitting down with an e-brace on? So I have to give you guys a little bit of an explanation. Uh, well, um, yesterday I was at a mean girl's birthday party, as one, <laughs> one would be at, and uh, I just forgot that I was 41 and thought that I was 21, and so I got into uh, a little bit of a brief game of basketball and uh, came down for, I think, my very first rebound, and, um, and my knee made a nice popping sound and then gave out. And then um, I was laying on the ground with uh, a few guys from the Oaks, like, talking to me, and I'm like, I'm in a lot of pain right now. I think you should take me to the hospital. I'm passing out. My hearing is going. My vision's starting to cloud. And, uh, and you know, at first they're kind of like, no, you just pulled, like, a hamstring or something. I'm like, no, I heard a popping sound. I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to happen. Um, and so, um, yeah, based on a preliminary kind of, like, looking at conversations with, uh, you know, with individuals who know more about this than I do. A popping sound does probably mean I've substantially injured it, uh, but I've been preaching this morning, so, <laughs> so otherwise I'd probably, probably be having an MRI done or something like that. So be praying for that. I'm going to be having an MRI done here probably uh, sometime this week to find out the, ex- the extent of the damage and, um, you know, yeah, so um, be praying for that. So now you know the story. <laughs> um, we are continuing on with our sermon series um, in looking at doubt, looking at deconstruction. And um, just by way of posture, so that you're aware if this is your first Sunday here with us or your first Sunday here in this series, um, you know, th- this idea of doubt and deconstruction has become a little bit of a buzzword in our culture. And for us, rather than taking a defensive posture towards deconstruction and doubt, um, we're taking an open-handed uh, posture. And, um, and I actually believe, and we'll talk about it a little bit today here, here but I actually think that doubt and deconstruction can actually um, help solidify someone in their faith and actually be part of every Christian's journey. And so we'll be talking about that here this morning, and we're going to be um, looking at uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been called uh, the reluctant, um, the reluctant uh, prophet, um, but not reluctant in the same way as Jonah, as we'll see. Um, you know, if you, we just got out of the Jonah series, Jonah was reluctant in one way, and you're going to see that Jeremiah is reluctant in another. So today we're going to be in Jeremiah. Um, we're going to start in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 12. Since I'm not standing, I won't ask you guys to stand. Uh, so we're going to be in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 12, and then we'll look at another text here in a second, but we'll start here. So this is Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 12. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant." And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. 
Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to, to perform it. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. Um, we will be looking at another text here in a little bit, but I want to give you a little bit of kind of just some explanation here. So Jeremiah is living in a very troubled time in Israel's history. Um, based on Jeremiah saying that he's a youth, we think that he was probably a teenager or a very young man and, uh, when all this is occurring. And uh, Jerusalem fell in 587 BC. It's followed up by the Babylonian exile. And everything that could go wrong for a nation went wrong for the nation of Israel. And Jeremiah is in the middle of all of that. And so the word of God, as we saw here, comes to Jeremiah when he's young and reveals to Jeremiah that he, Jeremiah, is going to be his prophet, God's prophet. Someone, a prophet is just someone who's proclaiming God's truth, someone who's acting as a sort of kind of mouthpiece for God. And God tells him, don't worry about what to say. I will put my words in your mouth. And then he tells Jeremiah these things that seem amazing, like his ministry is going to really flourish. I have set you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. And he says, I am watching over my word to perform it. And so it seems like God is really going to bless Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet. Right, we just got done looking at Jonah. And Jonah is this reluctant prophet that's disobedient. And he runs from God. And even in that, when Jonah goes and gives this word of warning to Nineveh, God does a work and all the people repent. There's repentance, right? And we, we remember that from Jonah. And so it seems like God is going to do this for Jeremiah as well. And um, like he's going to bless Jeremiah and do this amazing work. But the message that Jeremiah is ultimately given to deliver is similar to a word of warning and condemnation to Nineveh. God gives a word to Jeremiah, to his own people, to Israel, one that is of warning and condemnation. But rather than repent like Nineveh, the people of Israel did not respond so well to Jeremiah's message. Um, he's actually persecuted by his own people. And so with all of that in mind, with this idea that, you know, here's God, he calls Jeremiah to be a prophet uh, Jeremiah speaks these words of condemnation and warning to his people, and then they prosecute, you know, persecute him. Now we are in Jeremiah 12, verses 1 through 6. And this is Jeremiah's response after he's had this colossal unsuccess. He says in, um, in Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep from the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. 
And the Lord answers Jeremiah, and he says, um, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. So what's going on here? Jeremiah basically is going to God and saying, wait a second, wait a second. Um, I thought you were supposed to bless the prophets. What was all this set me up over nations and tear down and pluck? Like what, what was all of that? And so Jeremiah's story is one where everything that he lived and believed in and thought was going to happen, all these expectations are just completely smashed to bits. And it's like, well, wait a second, God, Jonah's this prophet that runs from you. He's disobedient. He begrudgingly obeys, and you bless his ministry. Here I am. I'm obeying what you're doing. I'm trying to speak your words faithfully as a servant. And instead of seeing a fruitful ministry, and people listening and repenting and turning to God, I'm seeing the exact opposite. Jeremiah is frustrated, right? He says, when I complain to you, when I plead my case to you, um, God, what are you doing? You told me all these things, and evil prevails. And, um, And now, right, your answer to me then, God, is that, oh, you think it's bad now? Just wait till you see how much worse it's going to get. Even your own family is plotting against you. They might be friendly to your face, but don't believe it because even your own family is, is going to turn against you. And so what is happening in Jeremiah, and I would submit to you that what happens in all of us is that God is disappointing and not meeting Jeremiah's expectations. Jeremiah had expected one thing and he got something completely different. And by the way, it did get worse for Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 20, a priest of all people, like a religious leader who is a temple official in Jerusalem, eventually gets so mad at Jeremiah that he has Jeremiah publicly beaten and put in stocks, which is like an act of public humiliation. He's publicly, he's physically beaten and publicly humiliated. And in chapter 20, Jeremiah cries out to God again, and he says, "'You deceived me, Lord.'" And I was deceived. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. He's saying, God, I thought that in my obedience that there would be a kind of blessing that you would give my life. But instead, it's like the more that I preach, the more that I obey, the more cursed that I am. There are a lot of things that fuel our deconstruction and doubt, um, and we'll talk about many of these things over this series, right? Tonight or today is not going to be all-encompassing. But one of the things, just one of the things that fuels doubt and deconstruction, possibly more than anything else, is these kinds of unmet expectations and disappointments from God. We're, there's a kind of disappointment. If we're honest, if we're honest like Jeremiah, there's a kind of disappointment that we can have with God in how um, things turn out. 
The hard reality is that we eventually all crash into this, that God will not meet our expectations. In fact, uh, God meeting our expectations might be the exception in our life and not the rule. God will inevitably allow circumstances in your life that you did not plan for, that you did not want. Like when you go to a birthday party and come down on the rebound and blow out your knee, right? (laughs) And if we're honest, like we struggle with this. We wrestle with with, with God in these things. let me, let me put it in an illustration because I like, I think illustrations can help bring a concept to life. Um, people often talk about a honeymoon phase when they first get married, right? Like, oh, they're, they're in the honeymoon phase. Um, and a honeymoon phase is a season where everything is good, everything's bliss, you're getting along, it's euphoria in the relationship. Um, and I didn't have this honeymoon phase uh, in my marriage because my expectations for my wife and what our relationship should look like were pie in the sky high, okay? Um, and I, I think I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. Four days into our marriage, uh, Amber and I were staying at a condo in Naples, Florida. And we were getting ready to go to this pool that was at this condo. And so we packed up some snacks, we packed up some, some beers and a cooler, and uh, when we get to the pool, there's a sign at the entrance that says, you know, no food, no alcoholic beverages. And so uh, Amber, being the goody tissues in the relationship, right? <laughs> she's like, oh, see that sign? We're, we can't bring any of this stuff into the pool. And I'm like, look at everyone in the pool. Like everyone's drinking. Like there's a kid over there that's spilling like a Cheez-Its into the pool, you know, like, <laughs> like, what are you, like, no, we're, we're, we're fine. Like, literally everybody is breaking the rules. Like, we'll be fine. Um, we're going to be okay. Well, Amber would not be moved, right? She would not go in um, with, you know, the, the food and the drinks. And I would not go in without them. <laughs> because that's the hill you should die on four days into your marriage, right? So... So eventually, I storm off with my drinks and, and, um, and my snacks. Amber goes to the pool without any of it, you know. And, uh, and so I go back to the condo, and I spend uh, the next couple of hours with my snacks and beers <laughs> and uh, in a pity party watching Terminator 2. <laughs> Four days into my marriage, that's true. Now, I wish I could say that I had come to my senses, right? But I didn't. Uh, and I spent the better part of that next year having all of my expectations coming crashing into the reality of a real relationship with a real woman instead of the one that I had constructed in my mind. We all bring our personal expectations into every relationship we have with each other here, with our friends, with our bosses, with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers. There's all kinds of expectations that you have. You might not even be aware of all of them, but there's expectations that you're bringing into literally every relationship that you have, including your relationship with God. And sometimes, oftentimes, our expectations are shredded and then we, in, in any relationship, and we begin to question the very nature of the relationship itself, right? Our unmet expectations become a kind of existential threat 
to that relationship. And so with God, we begin, um, we find ourselves inwardly thinking, well, if God, if you aren't going to meet me where I think you should, then I don't know if I can buy into this. I don't know if I can follow you. I don't know if I can relate to you. Because if we're honest about our expectations and, our, and, our, and how we approach it in relationships, even with God, a lot of times it's like, well, my belief in you or my belief in this relationship is predicated on you fulfilling my expectations. And so what do we do when our expectations collide with a relationship with a real God. Well, I'll tell you what I did with my, when my expectations collided um, with reality in my real marriage. Uh, I got stubborn. I became inflexible. Um, I lashed out at her in anger. Um, how do you think that went? Not good, right? Not good. Um, and when your expectations go and met in any relationship with others or with God, there I would submit that the wrong thing to do is to just be inflexible on those expectations, to become stubborn and flexible, to lash out in anger. But let's see what Jeremiah did. I actually think that Jeremiah uh, has this healthy response. So the first thing that we see that from Jeremiah is these two things held in tension, which is an intellectual honesty, but also an intellectual humility an intellectual honesty and an intellectual humility. Look what he says in chapter um, 12, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles there. It says, um, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Jeremiah starts off by saying, God, I know you're, you're right. You're, you're probably doing things according to your will, but I still need to get some things off my chest with you. I still need to wrestle with you on this. Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah's honesty here. I love his honesty. He isn't dishonest about how he doesn't like or agree with God and what God is doing, how his expectations are or have been shattered. And notice that God never condemns him for it. God never condemns Jeremiah for being honest. And it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting, I just think, uh, how God sometimes almost seems to invite the wrestling match. That's just kind of a side note. But if you go throughout the scriptures, it's, it's almost like sometimes like God is almost trying to pick a fight. Um, and Jeremiah expresses his frustration with that. Like, God, are you trying to pick on me here? What are you doing? And so the first thing that Jeremiah does is, is this intellectual honesty. Like, listen, God, we need to talk. We need to wrestle this out. I need to express something to you. Uh, I had some expectations for this relationship that you are not meeting. But Jeremiah also leaves the door open that he could be wrong, right? God, you are righteous. Not me. I'm not righteous. You are the one who's right. You are the one who sets the standards here. Even though I don't like this, I'm leaving the door open, God, that maybe you're up to something that's beyond my understanding. Jeremiah leaves room in his expectations that we, or that he could be wrong. Do we leave room in our expectations towards others, towards God, that we could be wrong? Do we do that towards God? Is there an intellectual honesty and an intellectual humility? Jeremiah is intellectually honest with God about where he's at, but he's also 
humble and open. Now, here's the thing. Unless we're God, and we're not, but unless we're God and our lives go exactly as we want, it only makes sense that all of us would eventually enter into this friction of unmet expectations. Anytime you encounter two wills, you will eventually have friction, right? Or, or does your will always align with everyone you've ever met? Of course not. Of course not. Anytime there are two wills, there's always going to be friction. I enter into this friction with my kids all the time. The outcomes they desire, the expectations uh, they have, and the outcomes I desire uh, do not always align. Uh, For example, my two boys, I have two boys. Um, They would like to eat chicken nuggets, Oreos, and ice cream for every meal. Uh, They do not get this desire. I do not meet that expectation. And it's not because I don't love them. It's because I know more than they do. Um, What feels like culinary torture to them is actually me wanting to, to mold them, refine them, help, help them be healthy, uh, and develop taste, bu- taste buds that extend beyond Doritos, you know? Um, or another example, my son Daniel. My son Daniel, um, when he was four, he's a little older now, but when he was four, he asked if I could give him a knife, like a pocket knife, because I had just given his older brother, Seth, his first pocket knife, like a little Swiss Army pocket knife. And so Daniel had decided that he too thought it was uh, good and pleasing to him to have a knife. Uh, I did not meet this expectation of my four-year-old. Someday he will get a knife, uh, but not at four. A clash of two wills. I have a better understanding of what is good for them. And so what feels cruel to them or like unusual punishment Uh, to them is actually me looking out for them in a long-term way. I want Daniel to have all of his fingers as an adult. Uh, What feels like withholding to them is actually a moment of patiently waiting for me um, for the right time on my part. What they experience as pain, senseless pain even, cruel pain for me is actually an expression of my long-term love for them. So if I'm intellectually honest and intellectually humble, if there is a God with his own will, and if there is a God who also has a higher understanding than me, if both of those things are true, if there's a God with his own will and a God who has a higher understanding than me, then I will inevitably run into the perception of him being against me. Inevitably. Even with... even with a God who loves me, will I still have that perception? And in fact, because he loves me, I will have that perception. There, is a, there will always be a massive gap between my expectations of what should happen and what I ex- actually experience. But he has my long-term good in mind. So intellectual honesty and humility requires that we be open-handed, just open-handed to that possibility. Right? That's the first way that Jeremiah deals with his frustrations, unmet expectations, doubts, deconstruction. Um, but the second thing he does is explore what he really wants from God. If God isn't going to meet my expectations, then what? Do I just want God to meet my expectations, or is there something else? Um, 
Because if God primarily exists just to give you what you want, I'll save you a lot of time. Uh, you should probably just abandon that concept, abandon the faith maybe. If that's, if that's your, your, the terms that you're coming to faith on, of God must meet all of my expectations, then I'm telling you right now, you're not going to experience that. I would actually give you that advice in any relationship. If, if other people exist to meet your expectations, if that's their primary purpose, good luck with that in any relationship at all. It's not going to go well because nobody's ever going to meet your expectations. Um, that's the nature of relationships as we've already kind of discussed. Your expectations will clash with the will of another. By the way, um, God isn't the only relationship uh, that we're kind of wrestling with in our culture, like deconstructing, doubting. Um, our culture has deconstructed a lot of different relationships, like, um, like basically every relationship is being deconstructed. I was reading this um, fascinating um, article uh, this week in, from The Atlantic, and sociologists have been observing now that particularly the millennial generation, it was kind of fascinating, the millennial generation has been deconstructing every single kind of relationship that they have. Their relationship to work, their relationship to their boss, to coworkers, their relationship to their siblings, to their parents, to extended family. Like it was really fascinating to see that um, they, they talked about, in, in, uh, in those of us who are millennials, that there was far less loyalty and relational ties to extended family than in any previous generation on, in history. Um, like, for example, adults 50 and, or, and older were significantly more likely than any other age group to live within an hour of extended family. Um, this is really interesting. This is a quote, again, from the, this Atlantic um, article regarding the deconstruction of extended family. Um, they said, a, a study of magazines by sociologists Francesca Concian and Stephen L. Gordon found that from 1900 to 1979, themes of putting family before self dominated. Love was defined as self-sacrifice and compromise. But there was a shift around 1980. Love was defined as self-expression and individuality. We, we are likely living through the most rapid change in family structure in human history. The causes are economic, cultural, and institutional all at once. The article goes on to say that this cultural shift has disproportionately impacted the marginalized women, people of color, the elderly, and the poor in negative ways. Because wealthy and privileged people can deconstruct all of their relationships and then use their, their privilege and money to insulate themselves from any sort of fallout that would occur in the deconstruction of those very relationships. Um, you can't do that when you don't have means or access to, uh, to money. Um, so our society, our privileged society, has begun deconstructing every relationship. And so the question, again, that our deconstructing society has to ask, question every married person has to ask, or the, the question that you all have to ask about every relationship um, that you are in, the question that Jeremiah had to ask about God is this, do I want to be right like, it's, is it about me? Do I want to be right or do I want to relate? Because they don't always go together. Do I want to be right or do I want to, be, to relate? Earlier in my marriage, right? Early in my marriage, I'm like, no, I'm going to be right. This is, it's my expectations. I am right in this. 
and I'm going to forego relating, right? And that was what I was, how that was working out. I'm glad I didn't continue on that path, right? But that's often the question that we have when we run into conflicting expectations with another will or with God. Do I want to be right or do I want to relate? Remember I said Jeremiah had to explore what he really wanted. If God isn't going to meet his expectations, what does he really want? Does he want to be right or does he want to relate? Um, you know, do I want to avoid having my expectations disappointed by cutting everyone off who disappoints and doesn't deliver? Or do I want to be in a relationship with people and with a God who, where I run the risk of having my expectations continually hurt and disappointed? Um, and by the way, this, people have been wrestling in this way with God uh, since the beginning. Last, last two weeks, we saw how Elijah and Abraham uh, wrestled with God. Jacob literally wrestled with God. In the New Testament, even John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin from prison, sends word to Jesus and says, are you the one or is there another Messiah we should expect? These are people that experienced God in like tangible ways that on this side of life, we will never experience. And they doubted. It seems to be the nature of how we relate to God. It's almost like it's part of the DNA of a relationship with God where, where there's not opportunity for doubt, there's like not opportunity for faith and trust. Like what if our doubts are Jesus's way, and this is true for Jeremiah, what if doubts and disappointments are Jesus's way of rescuing you from fearful and damaging theology? Have you thought about that? What if your doubts are actually God's work in your life to change, to wrestle with the views that you have about yourself, about him, about the world? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's where some of the doubts are actually a, a, like a good thing, a part of a healthy faith journey. In Jeremiah um, 20, in verse 9, he comes to this very fascinating conclusion. This is where Jeremiah lands. He says, but if I say, I will not mention his name. If I say, I'm, I'm done. If I say, fine, I'm not even going to mention his name anymore. He says, if I say, I will not mention his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Do you see what Jeremiah is saying here? He's really saying, God, even when I don't like what you're doing, even when I don't even want to say your name, man, there's, if I, I still want to relate. There's still a fire inside of my bones for you. In John 6, Jesus is preaching and teaching. He's got his core 12 disciples, but he's been gathering an extended group of disciples, right? The, the, the 12 disciples weren't his only disciples. Jesus actually had many other disciples. And so he's teaching all of these disciples, not just the 12, and he begins to shatter their expectations by saying some really hard things, hard things that they don't want to hear. And um, they begin to walk away. A lot of them are like, We're, this doesn't meet our expectations of what we expected from the Messiah. We're done. 
And um, it says in John 6, verse 66, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered him, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. In other words, Jesus, we may not like the things you're saying. Like we might be with them, agree with them that these expectations are hard, but a relationship with you is one where we thrive, where we experience life. So we choose the relationship with you more than being right. We care more about relationship than being right. Do you know why I believe in my marriage after 19 years? What have I learned now that I didn't know when I was first married? What's, what's changed? Why am I still married to a woman that continues to not meet my expectations? Why is she married to a man that perpetually disappoints her and doesn't meet her expectations? Why, how are we, how is that, what's going on there? Um, why am I still in this relationship? Because I get her. Because I get to relate to her. The argument for why I should stay in and believe in my marriage isn't just pragmatic to my expectations. It isn't just a rational or logical argument. It's primarily relational. It's relational. And in the same token, listen, Jesus himself is the main argument for why you should believe in Christianity. Your hurts and dis disappointments and expectations are real, and you should be honest about those. But Jesus is why you should believe. Not, not, again, be honest about your expectations, but Jesus is why you should believe. And this is what Jeremiah was communicating in part when he said that God's words were like a fire in his bones. And when Peter says, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Now, some of you may say, hey, listen, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, I'm not deconstructing or doubting because of these relational reasons that you're, you know, unpacking here. Um, I, I have deconstructed or I have doubts because of scientific or logical reasons. And that's fair. Fair enough, that could be true. You could also, it could be a blend, right? You might be a little bit self-deceived. It might be a blend. But either way, if that's where you're at today, I'm not talking to you. We'll cross that bridge perhaps in another um, conversation. I'm talking today to those of us who, you know, can, will continue to wrestle with God and our hurts and disappointments and um, relationship with him. And so the practical questions for those of us that fall into that category are this. Are you being intellectually honest with God, intellectually honest and intellectually humble? Are you holding your expectations to God, to any relationship really, open-handedly? And can you answer what you really want from God? Do you need God to affirm you, to give you everything that you wanted? Or are you open to wrestling with a God who wants to relate, just not on your terms. And sometimes our terms aren't so good. Like God in his infinite wisdom did not consult with us when devising a plan to save us. Um, actually, he did, interestingly enough, have a conversation about this with his disciples. Uh, Jesus once asked his disciples, 
if they believed they could take the cup, like the sins, if they could, if they could take his cup and bear it, and they naively said, oh yeah, we're ready for that. We could take the cup. Like a four-year-old asking for a knife. I'm ready, right? I'm ready. And Jesus says, no, you could not take this cup. It would destroy you. I will take this cup. I will take this cup. And so Jesus hung on a cross. He died for us. He rose again. Jesus himself is the argument for why we should believe in Christianity. And we remember his sacrifice every week uh, when we take communion. And so the bread represents Christ's body broken for us. And the cup represents Christ's blood shed for us. And so every week, if you're a Christian, if you, um, you don't have to be a member of this church, but if you are a Christian, uh, you're invited to come forward. Uh, the band, in a moment, the band will come forward, they will play. You're invited to come forward to take a piece of the bread and to uh, dip it in the wine or the juice as your conscience permits, and to remember that the reason why we believe is primarily relational. It's primarily about Jesus. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, we want to be honest with you about our doubts, about our deconstruction, about our frustrations about the ways in which you disappoint us. Um, And I'm thankful that you're a patient father that will sit there and wrestle with us and work through us with these things in a a way that where you don't condemn us, but you love us through through that. You're patient with us. Thank you for the example of Jeremiah. Um, I pray that we would wrestle with our, uh, that we'd be intellectually honest towards you. We would be vulnerable to you and to each other as as Christians, that we would talk, we'd be willing to talk about our doubts, our frustrations, um, our journey. And and I also pray that along with that honesty, that we would also be humble, that we would uh, have open-handed expectations in all of our relationships, but certainly in our relationship with you. Um, I pray that that... um, that approach uh, flows over not just in the way in which we relate to you, but that it flows over into all of our relationships. Um, And uh, so I'm thankful for the example of Jeremiah, thankful for what your word has showed us here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.